Hey, Rob, you ready to learn about eight-time Academy Award winner Edith Head? Yes! She was one of the most influential costume designers in film history, right? Yeah! And I just knitted to know all about her. Knitted? Instead of needed, really? Edith Head, she was a cut above the rest. Great, you're making sewing puns. Edith Head certainly never said, you know, life's a stitch. Well, actually, she probably did. Don't make me get out of this chair, Ray. Are you threading me? We need to start the show. I can't think of any more sewing puns. I'm out of material. You need to stop. We talk about Edith Head this week on This Was a Thing. This was a thing. This was a thing. This was a thing. Don't you remember? Jackie Robinson swing Going my way with Bing And the friendly spring Of a slinky toy Or color TV screens Jukebox machines Tiny Hubble figurines This was a thing This was a thing Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Ray. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Now, this week, we're going to be talking about eight-time Oscar-winning costume designer Edith Head. Eight times. That's right. She was a thing <laughs> because she was- She was a thing. Well, yeah. I mean, she I don't, yeah, don't want to say this was a thing because it's a, it's a human being. No, this is a spinoff episode. <laughs> She was a thing. She was a thing. Welcome to She Was a Thing, the podcast that dives in. Well, anyway, she was a thing because she was the first head of a major department at a major studio in a Hollywood that was even more of a boys club than it is now. Edith Head was a force to be reckoned with. She was known for her distinct look of uh, little bangs, big glasses, and she had a huge influence on costumes in the world of film. That's right, a huge influence in the world of costumes. You like what I did there? I, I, did. Even, I even put it in all caps. Huge. <laughs> huge. Um, okay, uh, she, she has an astounding... 431 credits on IMDb. What? what? How many? 431. And that doesn't include the random wardrobe jobs that she has listed for earlier in her career. So, I mean, she was hustling. She was working a lot. Now, this is a, this is a quote just to give you a little idea of uh, Miss Edith Head. What we do is a cross between magic and camouflage. We ask the public to believe that every time they see an actress or actor that they are a different person. That's beautiful, Precious. Let's just talk about a little bit about Edith's early life, right? Costume designer Edith Head. Costume 431 designer. credits, eight Oscars. I'm following along. Edith Head was born Edith Claire Posner on October 28th. 1893 in San Bernardino, California, born to Jewish parents Anna E. Levy and Max Posner. Shortly before Edith's birth, her father opened up a small haberdashery. I thought you were going to say, and one day her father opened a small can of green beans. <laughs> he loved green beans. Now Edith, now, Edith hated green beans, and that made her want to get out of San Bernardino. But <laughs> with her dad opening a haberdashery, Edith, either way, the craft... Of clothing design was in her blood that, you know, it was kind of cemented. Because there was no vaccine for it then. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're an idiot. Well, the haberdashery didn't last. 
Something else <laughs> that didn't last was Edith's parents' marriage. What? Now, Whoa, yeah. what a transition. Yeah, now by 1905, oh, <laughs> uh, her mother had remarried a mining engineer, Frank Spare. So 1905, this is, Edith was only eight years old when her mother remarried. So this marriage would mean a lot of moving around based on Spare's line of work. I guess uh, mining engineers were going all over back then. She once said of her childhood, I didn't have what you would call an artistic or cultural background. We lived in the desert and we had burrows and jackrabbits and things like that. Did she dress up the jackrabbits? Yeah, and those jackrabbits looked fierce. Can you imagine the rabbits coming back? Hey, hey, do you see Fluffy? He has a Givenchy gown. And she added ear extensions and they look natural. <laughs> Now, she grew up in Texas and Nevada before moving to Los Angeles with her mother after her stepfather and mother separated. Edith would go on to get her Bachelor of Arts degree in Letter and Sciences with honors in French from the University of California, Berkeley. Play bien et dead. The following year, 1920, she got her Master of Arts degree in Romance Languages from Stanford University. <laughs> What's Romance Languages? Probably Latin. Shout out Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg. Now, with these two degrees in higher education, Edith went on to become a replacement language teacher at Bishop School in La Jolla, California. Now, after a year, she moved on to the Hollywood School for Girls. She had to move on. You just can't hold it back. I got to go to the Hollywood School for Girls to teach Spanish. Now, if you're keeping tabs, that's three languages, assuming she spoke English. That's English, <laughs> Spanish, and French. She was born in the United States, but English was her fourth language. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you were saying, Edith Head, she made costumes. Uh, no, she's, now she's teaching. She's not there yet. She, what, what is she doing? No, she wanted to earn some extra money, so she told the school that she she could teach art. You lie! <laughs> now, she, she'd only really studied it briefly in high school, but not to be deterred, she decided to take night classes to improve her art skills at Otis Art Institute and Schwinnard Art College. Now, I had to look up how to say that. Schwinnard. She would go on to marry Charles Head, who was the brother of one of her Schwinnard classmates, Betty Head. Edith applied for a job as a costume sketch artist at the uh, costume department at the famous Players Lansky Studio. The what? I never heard of this. It's famous? The, well, it became it would become Paramount Studios. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. So, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah. Uh, it, it was in order to support Charles and herself through the summer of 1924. Now, this is Edith talking about how she got her start. I know you used to teach Spanish. I was Spanish. a school teacher, taught Spanish. And come summer, I had to make some money. There was an ad in the paper, they needed a sketch artist. And I think when you're young, you don't have the same sense of honesty as you do when you're older, not with me. But anyhow, I was working in this beautiful art school, and I thought it would be amusing to, you know, we take portfolios when you apply for a job. So I went to every student in the class, and I got a collection of the finest drawings by, you know, the advanced students. So I went to the studio, and the man said, my, Miss Head, I have never seen so much talent from one portfolio got the job. Next morning, I couldn't draw very well, and I thought I was going to be fired, but he was a charming man with a great sense of humor, and uh, I survived. I do not advocate that for young designers, though. Did, did you ever tell him that you had swiped the drawing? Oh, he knew it. That's why he, he laughed. He thought anybody who had that much desire to get in the studio deserved the job. So she got her job from, well, let's say 
borrowing, right? I heard robbery. <laughs> she did a good job of getting her way in there. Now, Paramount Pictures was already a big name at that point. They had a silent screen stars like Clara Bow and Gloria Swanson. The guy that she had the interview with was Howard Greer, who was then the Paramount's chief designer. She admitted to borrowing the sketches. So I always, you know, like Picasso said, great artist steal. <laughs> <laughs> she borrowed... But borrowing sketches didn't matter to Greer because her language skills are what made her indispensable. Edith once said, the only reason I survived to stay on the staff as a sketch girl was the fact that I had a background of speaking foreign languages. They were making foreign versions of films and I was the only one who could talk readily with the foreign stars. Oh, interesting. Howard Greer was extremely influential in helping Edith become a master of her craft. He taught her how to draw in his own style and she also learned how to read a script and create a wardrobe plot for a film which would list the character or description of their costume and the sequence of the film of which it would appear. Now, in 1925, costume designer Travis Batten was hired by Paramount. He'd already made a name for himself designing costumes for Ziegfeld Follies. Now, Rob, will you give a quick rundown of a Ziegfeld Follies outfit, what it would look like? Incredibly elaborate, usually very, very tall women in heels and very large headdresses, a little skin showing. Feathers. Feathers, feathers. sparkles, sequins, yeah. Travis Banton gave Edith her first opportunity to design costumes for Cecil B. DeMille's The Golden Bed, also in 1925. For the film, Edith designed costumes covered with real chocolate and sweets, which would melt under the hot studio lights and then would have to be replaced. What? In the costume she had designed, they used real chocolate and sweets, and the chocolate and sweets would melt underneath the hot studio lights, so they had to be replaced. Edith became an assistant to both Greer and Banton on films for Paramount, so she she also changed up her drawing style, going on to mimic Travis Banton's style. Sorry, bye-bye, Howard Greer's style. Of this time, Edith said, I did the ants, the grandmothers, the men. I did a lot of men things because they didn't like to do the men too much. What they call background stuff. Edith didn't just learn design styles from these men. She also learned how important it was to establish a rapport with the stars of the studio. You have to have patience of the job, she once said. In 1927, Edith was given her first big Hollywood star address, Clara Bow. We were just talking oh, about Clara her Bo, okay. a minute ago. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ray Hebel. Now, after Travis Banton fell out with the actress Clara Bow, Clara Bow and Edith became good friends while working on Wings... Now what? Was Steven Weber? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, no, but t- what is what is Wings known for, Rob? The movie, the film. Wings is the first film to win Best Picture. Exactly, the first Academy Award for yeah, Best it ta- Picture. It, it was that and another one. I can't remember the other name. The other one, the other name, but Wings was legs. The one. <laughs> <laughs> now, both women. Clara and Edith, obviously, were disappointed that Clara had to wear an army uniform throughout the film, but. It made sense for the picture. Greer and Batten taught Edith the important lesson that in costume design, what is right for the character always had to come first. That's pretty advanced at that time. She began being featured in studio publicity, uh, being surrounded by some of the biggest stars of the day. Now, she downplayed herself as little Edith in dark glasses and the beige suit. That's how I've survived. Howard Greer left Paramount in December 1927 to open his own couture operation where he designed custom clothing for the stars until his retirement in 1962. After Greer was gone, Edith would become Banton's full-time assistant. She would learn a lot from him in her time working under his wing. She learned about mixing different 
materials and textures by watching Greer work. She was assigned the role of costuming secondary characters for the many A and B movies that Paramount made in the late mm-hmm. 1920s. The Great Depression hit in 1929 and nearly tanked Paramount, and it especially affected the wardrobe department, but Edith luckily was able to get her contract renewed in 1932. One way that started to help her stand out from the other designers was that she would present multiple sketches for the same scene. The actors? Yeah, the actors. Cause, oh, because they would have approval. Yeah, they would have the approval. Yeah. This would allow the actresses to have some kind of say in the costume that they'd be wearing on screen. And now this made her really popular among Paramount starlets because then they kind of had, you know, they could feel good in what they were wearing and they also got to uh, have their say in it. The year 1933 is when Edith would finally get her big break. She would finally be credited for her work and the starlet that she got to design for Miss Mae West. Oh, really? Yep, that was her first big one. The film was She Done Him Wrong. It That's was a, a big deal. Yeah. And it was a crime. Uh, she Done Him Wrong was a crime comedy set in the 1890s. So this allowed Edith to design beautiful period gowns and would get her a lot more exposure. Edith's design made sure to emphasize Mae West's hourglass figure. The silhouette was so popular that it uh, helped influence fashion icon Elsa Scaparelli. Scaparelli, Scaparelli, to incorporate hourglass designs and similar materials into her collections. Now, Scaparelli was Coco Chanel's main rival at the time, so Edith was already inspiring Coco's main rival, which is a pretty good endorsement to get. Now, by the mid-1930s, Edith's duties at the wardrobe department expanded due to the fact that Paramount was making new, diverse film, but also due to the fact that Travis Banton was an alcoholic who would frequently just not show up to work. So she was doing his job. So she was starting to do his jobs. Now, she would also... So she also wouldn't receive screen credit for all of her work, just the clothes design for the big stars. Now, without the protection of Banton, now, like I said, he was a frequent no-show, Edith would regularly get challenged by other creative departments. She was just still little Edith with the dark glasses and the beige suit. Was she the inspiration for the man in the yellow hat from Curious George? I'm just, I'm getting a little sense here. Oh my God. Around this time in 1936, Edith would uh, design one of her most iconic pieces, a satin crepe sarong. Now a sarong- For Dorothy L'Amour? Yeah. Uh, is that really? Is it Dorothy L'Amour? Yeah, very yes. good. A sarong is a skirt-like garment formed by wrapping a strip of cloth around the lower part of the body. It has its origins in Southeast Asia. Now the sarong would be worn by the glamorous Dorothy L'Amour, like you said, in the film The Jungle Princess. L'Amour would become such a star that she would be cast in numerous sarong-clad roles. Now, these sarongs would become a major fashion craze in the late 1930s. I still wear mine Uh, when I'm not wearing my Scaparelli (laughs) hourglass figure chiffon. This is from the Costume Society. Edith's loyalty to Banton couldn't hide his lateness and absence from the studio, and he was released early from his contract in March 1938. Even though Head feared the studio hiring a new courtier to replace Banton, the way she continued to run the department so smoothly convinced the studio to promote Edith to head of department, which allowed Paramount the rights to license her name and designs. Does she get any money for this? I mean, I'm sure that if I mean, if they're licensing yeah, it, okay. I'm guessing that okay. Even back then with bad contracts sure. and her being a woman, I'm sure she got, she got some money out well, of I it. I hope so. Okay. Being the chief costume designer meant that Edith was the first woman to hold such a high position at a studio. Edith remembered the 1930s as being her favorite decade. She once said of the era, the star was a star and she wore real fur and real jewels. 
1938 also saw the end of Edith's marriage to Charles, although she had been separated for, from him for a number of years. Edith would continue to use his last name head professionally until her death. By the end of the 1930s, Paramount was putting out 40 to 45 films a year. With so much output, the studio hired an outside designer to help pick up some of the slack. Paramount brought in Oleg Cassini to be an additional designer for the wardrobe department. Cassini would go on to design Jackie Kennedy's White House wardrobe. So they brought in someone that would have a pretty good career. Now, in 1940, Edith would remarry, this time to Weird Bill Einan, an art director in the film industry. And his name was Weird Bill? W-I-A-R-D. Oh, I thought, I'm sorry. No, no, yeah, I know. As it was coming out. I thought it was a nickname. Yeah, Weird, Weird Bill Einan. They would remarried until his death in 1979, and... Interestingly, to me at least, one of his early art direction credits was the Marx Brothers Duck Soup. Really? Yeah. World War II started and Paramount had to make some budget cuts. Well, Edith was happy to let the studio know that Cassini was expendable and that she could handle all the design responsibilities herself. Edith would develop a good working relationship with the actresses she was dressing, which led her to getting jobs that she wouldn't normally have gotten. The year 1946 saw Edith's first collaboration with Alfred Hitchcock Ah. for his film Notorious. She got loaned to RKO at the insistence of Ingrid Bergman. So Ingrid Bergman wanted her at RKO to do this film. Head would follow the clothing directives that Hitchcock placed in the script, tailoring her design to make Bergman both elegant and believable as a spy. Now, the Academy Award for Costume Design was established in 1949, which was uh, big for Edith. Edith would be nominated the first year but lost to the film The Emperor Waltz. But the next year would be different. She won the first of her eight little golden men for the film the heiress. Oh, wow, yeah. The film is set in New York in the 1850s. So from the time that the award was established in 1949, Edith would be nominated every year until 1966. So from 49 to 66, she was nominated every year. Now, I'm only going to cover the wins because she was nominated a record 35 times. What did she win for? Well, I'll tell you right now. Something interesting about the Academy Awards for Costume Design that I found out during my research is that until 1967, there were two awards given out. Best Costume Design Black and White and Best Costume Design Color. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... I didn't know that. Yeah, that gave her some extra... Extra nominations, but even still, I mean, it's cool that they recognized the fact that this new burgeoning color film industry had, you know, differences that had to be done. Now, in 1950, Edith won for both categories, black and white and color. For black and white, she won for the film All About Eve. Oh, yes. For best costume design color, she won for C.C.B. DeMille's biblical epic, which you gotta love a biblical epic, Samson and Delilah. She got to dress the beautiful Hedy Lamarr. It's Hedy. <laughs> the third year that the Costume Design Award was given out, Edith already won three awards. Okay, baller. The very next year, 1951, Edith took home another Oscar, this time for Costume Design Black and White, for the film A Place in the Sun. Oh. Starring a 17-year-old. Sidney Poitier. Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, sorry. (laughs) One of Edith's most iconic designs was for Liz in this film, a white satin gown studded with velvet violets. I got that from online. That's white diamonds. Now, when the film was released, this dress with its six layers of white net over mint green taffeta was copied by manufacturers to be sold in stores and became a popular prom dress for young women wanting a piece of movie glamour. So Edith had inspired prom dresses all over the 50s. And who only wanted to go to first base (laughs) after prom. Her designs were so popular they were breaking out into the general public. My God, we have to contain it. (laughs) 
What is it? It's a it's a gown with taffeta. What? Taffeta's all over. Tell the kids to hide under the desk. <laughs> now, the next two Oscars would come home with Edith in 1953 and 1954. She would win for dressing one of the film's biggest icons, Audrey Hepburn. Now, she won Best Costume Design Black and White for Roman Holiday in 1953. She did Audrey Hepburn's Roman Holiday And costume? Sabrina in 1954. Those are iconic. Yeah, so Edith had did... Those black dress. Oh, my yeah. God. This is a clip of her describing a costume screen test she did with Audrey Hepburn for Roman Holiday. Roman Holiday. This is the first time that you see Miss Hepburn on the screen in a test, testing in the costume for Roman Holiday. You see, she is supposed to be... A princess disguised as an ordinary girl on the streets of Rome. So we made her a simple costume so she wouldn't look different. And you know why she's rolling up her sleeves and all of these things? It's because in the picture she had to look casual, informal, and we felt due to the heat of Roman summer, a girl would really do this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Now watch and see what she does now, because this is what we call demonstrating through a test what is going to happen in a picture. It helps the director and it helps an actress. You see, she's whirling around because in the picture she has to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> see, it proves it. She dressed the actress in dresses with full skirts to hide her legs, a plain blouse with the sleeves rolled up to camouflage Audrey's thin arms, and used necklines and scarves to distract attention away from her collarbones. The film catapulted Hepburn to stardom and won her the Best Actress Oscar. So this is the thing that broke Audrey Hepburn. Edith would continue to get nominated throughout the 50s, but didn't take any more Oscars home with her, unfortunately. She may not have won any more Oscars, but she did develop a friendly relationship with actress Grace Kelly. Did she do Rear Window? Okay, okay, I won't, I won't get ahead. Now, this friendship began in 1954 when Grace had a small role in the film The Bridges of Tokori. That same year, 1954, Grace Kelly won an Oscar for the film The Country Girl, and Edith designed her wardrobe for the film. To accept her award, Grace Kelly wore an ice blue satin gown and coat and was designed by Edith. Grace Kelly would wear the ensemble on the cover of Life magazine the following week. Oh my gosh. And in 1954 was a great year for the working relationship of Edith and Grace because it was also the year that Alfred Hitchcock chose them to both work on his film Rear Window. Rear Window! Oh, very good, Rob! Now the women were very excited because Edith could finally design fashionable clothes for Grace as she would be playing a fashion model on the film. So they were they were about to get lit. They were like, what's up? We get to do some cool costumes. And Grace Kelly's like, hell yeah, eat it. Is that how they spoke back then? Yeah, it's more visual. This is from the Costume Society. The iconic off-the-shoulder black bodice worn with the white tulle skirt and Balenciaga-inspired oud jacket and pencil skirt marked a more conservative style in heads designs. Now, I just want to let everyone know I'm obviously... Uh, I took the designs from people that understand costuming because I would be like, it's a... Uh, it's an eggshell, and uh, it looks like it. It looks like it was in the closet amongst the other clothes because it's crinkled. But I think it's supposed to look like that. <laughs> top of the morning to you, Ray Hebel. Ooh, top of the morning to you, my little shady lady. Now I feel uncomfortable. Have you found my lucky charms? Oh, not yet. But I haven't looked on. Oh, Patreon.com, yay! What is a Patreon? Well, it's a place where all of our loyal listeners can go and donate a dollar or two or five to help us keep this podcast going. And now, how does one do that, my little Warwick Davis? Our little leprechauns can head on over to Patreon.com. That's P A T. 
R-E-O-N.com. <laughs> and search for this was a thing. The podcast and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing. And you get annually 26 more episodes that the general public does not even get. And don't worry, it's going to be even more than that. Ooh, Faith and Bigara! Faith and Bigara and over to Patreon to donate money! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling ya! The next year, 1955, Hitchcock asked to continue collaborating with the woman for the film... Do you know which film this is? You know what the next year was? 55? Yeah. After Rear Window? Yeah, here. I'll give you, here. Charade. To Catch a Thief. Nice! So I was pretending like I had a mitt, and I was... With To Catch a Thief, Hitchcock emphasized the importance of high fashion for Grace Kelly, because the star should look like a star, goddammit. This is from the Costume Society. Kelly was given more choice in regards to her costumes and collaborated with Head to create a blue draped chiffon gown, a strapless white chiffon gown, a pink dress and scarf, and the gold gown worn by Kelly during the masquerade ball. Mm. I think chiffon was on chassale. Uh, <laughs> The styles that Eve created for Grace Kelly were so popular that Barbie later on would do a line of dolls wearing the designs from Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. For Barbie? For Barbie. Kids really wanted to play with the Rear Window version? Of- I think it was the kids' grandparents, but Edith would say that Grace Kelly was her favorite actress to work with and remained friends with Grace after she married the Prince Rainier III of Monaco. Here's Edith. A motion picture designer was a freak because we did fantastic clothes. And after years and years and years of people making fun of my clothes, now they're copying them. I think that most people don't realize motion pictures are not fashion. You see, so many people say to me, isn't it lovely to be a fashion designer and dress these beautiful scars? That is not what happens. I get a script, and the script says, in this film, Grace Kelly is playing a princess. She's beautiful. She has fabulous clothes. And that's heaven, of course. The next script says, Grace Kelly is a middle-aged dowdy housewife. This is what really happened. So you do dowdy clothes. I can do tacky clothes, dowdy clothes, sexy clothes, horrible clothes. I can do clothes, anything in the world you want, from male, female, or animals. I like her. She's a badass. Now, wait a minute. She's a badass. She said people make fun of my clothes. Who was making fun of her clothes? I think it probably was the fact that she wasn't getting respected and stuff. Sure, You know what I mean? Where it's like, I'm sure she would present designs that were like, oh, well, whatever. Little Edith and the big glasses and the tan, the beige suit. Yes. You know, so I think that finally... I wonder if Travis Banton wasn't an alcoholic, if she would have been able to step in because essentially like him not showing up she just kind of stepped in and they realized oh well she's fucking really good but i don't know if at that time they she would have gotten an opportunity because it was such a male orient white male oriented fucking you know studio system interesting okay now edith took credit for two designs that became fashion crazes the first was the sarong that i mentioned earlier back in 1936 and the second were the toreador pants that she designed for audrey hepburn in both sabrina and then for funny face in 1957 so in 1956, one of the years Edith was nominated for color and black and white, she lost both. The films were The Ten Commandments and The Proud and Profane. Edith would win her next Best Costume Design Black and White Oscar for 1960 film The Facts of Life. Sadly, no relation to the show. This is going to ask. This was her seventh golden statue, five for black and white and two for color. The Facts of Life starred Lucille Ball and Bob Hope as a married couple who have an affair. With each other? Yeah. 
So Edith could work with pretty much anyone. And uh, why don't you go ahead and read this line right there, because it is a quote from Miss Lucille Ball. There is anyone I can't... No, as Lucy. Oh, there isn't anyone I can't make over. She once said, and her loyal clientele were also well aware, as Lucille Ball once put it, that... Edith doesn't tell. That was a hard clip to pull. Now, Edith <laughs> Edith would continue to be nominated, but not win until 1966. Most of those years, she was nominated for both categories. Now, in March 1967, after 43 years, Edith left Paramount Pictures to go design for Universal. She was 70 at this point and had the tail end of her career, but she was still Edith Head. That's exciting. It's been said that she moved to the studios so she could be under the same studio roof as Alfred Hitchcock, who she continued to collaborate with. In all, they would collaborate on 11 films together. So we should probably remind people at this point that back then it, you were owned by the studio. Yeah. So it wasn't easy to go around the way it is today. Yeah, it's it, yeah, much different. So and yeah. I probably took her being 70 and them going like, "Yeah, it's fine." Let her have a nice yeah. life. This is from a BFI article. Hitchcock was drawn to the suggestive power of costume and its persuasion over his characters and actors alike. He made no allowance for the tailoring taste and wisdoms of the members of his cast, which Ted had been used to heeding when dressing the likes of Mae West and Betty Hutton. The most notable of the films being The Birds. Yes, I was right. The designs she did for The Birds themselves were just incredible. For The Birds themselves. Yeah. Yes. The feather work? <laughs> Oh, my God. Incredible. The Givenchy wings? <laughs> exactly. Incredible. Thank Incredible. you. Incredible. This is from the National Portrait Gallery profile of Edith regarding her move to Universal. She knew one of the reasons she was hired at that stage of her life was her high profile would bring the studio publicity. And it was a role she relished. An assistant remembered. She'd hear the tour tram coming down the street, stick some pencils in her bun, and run to the doorway of her office just so she could happen to be coming out when the tram went by. Heaven help you if you got in the way. So, Oh, that's cute. It's very funny to me that little Edith Head in her 70s wanted to give, 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 the, give the people a little taste of the Hollywood lifestyle. Now, this is interesting because what that implies is is that people would have known her physically. Like they would be able to identify her. So she must have been featured in tons of yeah, magazines. I think magazines. And yeah. Well, yeah, I'll get into kind of like she oh, became yeah. like a household name and stuff. Now, this is a clip of Edith from 1970 discussing how she plans things out around Oscar time with the nominated actresses. I talked to each of the stars, described the color of the set, and discussed with them the color they're going to wear, the silhouette, so we try to get a differentiation of costume in all of the actresses. You must remember that this is the one time that an actress presents herself as her own image, not a character in the film. Now, the Academy does not tell a star what she can or cannot wear. But since this is the most important time of the year in Hollywood, since the Academy Wars goes all over the entire world, and it represents not only our industry, but the entire country, we feel sure that the stars aren't going to wear any of the, you know, freaky, far-out, unusual fashions. And we feel that this year it's going to be the most beautiful fashion show that's ever been. Edith will win her final Oscar in 1973 for the film The Sting. May we have the envelope, please? Oh. And the winner is Edith Head for The Sting. Thanks. 
Just imagine dressing the two handsomest men in the world and then getting this. I simply couldn't be more happy or more grateful. And thank you all so much. This is from the National Portrait Gallery. Edith Head had fashioned herself into as much of a celebrity icon as the stars. She costumed. True, part of her achievement resulted from her willingness to ring her own bell. But most of all, her success came because she was a realist about life in the Hollywood dream factory. Quote, you gotta give them what they want, kid. If you don't, they'll find somebody who will. End quote. Which is, that is the tr- as true today as it is ever. Edith would receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1974. She would receive her final Oscar nominations in 1975 for The Man Who Would Be King in, 19- in 1977 for Airport 77. Nominations 34 and 35. Her husband, Weard Bill... Einan would die from cancer in 1979 at the age of 81. Two years later, in 1981, Edith Head would sadly pass away from an incurable bone marrow disease four days before her 84th birthday. Oh. Yep. Sad. I just want to go over some of the all-time film legends that Edith had designed for over her career. I'm repeating some, but they're worth repeating. And go. Mae West, Dorothy Lamour, Barbara Stanwyck, Ginger Rogers, Ingrid Bergman, Betty Davis, Hedy Lamar, Gloria Swanson, Elizabeth Taylor, Carmen Miranda, Audrey Hepburn, Grace Kelly, Rosemary Clooney, Shirley MacLaine, Doris Day, Lauren Bacall, Sophia Loren, Natalie Wood, Julie Andrews, Jane Fonda, Joan Crawford, Catherine Hepburn, Valerie Perrine. That's great. Any men? Yes. She also dressed plenty of famous males too. Clark Gable, Fred Astaire, Cary Grant, John Wayne, Rock Hudson, Robert Redford, Paul Newman, Steve Martin, and even... Elvis for the film Blue Hawaii. Oh! Now, no matter who she was dressing, no matter what the occasion, whether it was for, to be on a film set or backstage at the Academy Awards, she was always prepared. Well, I don't have crises because, you see, I have a crash crew backstage that are women equipped with needles, pins, liquid cement, scotch tape, all sorts of things. You know, one time we had a star who was just ready to go on stage, stepped on her dress, whole skirt almost came off, and she says, I can't go on. So we pinned her together, and on she went. Edith Head was much more than just a 35-time Oscar nominee. She was also a client. (laughs) Uh, She also wanted to use her celebrity to help the average person in fashion. From the National Portrait Society. She built on her Hollywood celebrity to purvey the ideas about practical and simple design through a network of other commercial channels, writing articles for Photoplay magazine about how the average girl could dress like a star, licensing her name for Vogue pattern designs, and beginning in 1948, appearing as a regular guest on Art Linklater's House Party, where she would give women in the audience practical advice about how to dress and generally improve their looks. So she was a known person throughout. She wasn't just some behind-the-scenes costume designer. Honey, the only thing that's going to help you is low lighting and glaucoma. <laughs> Edith Head was a legend, and she deserves more recognition than she's already received, so I wanted to give her some respect. But the main thing is that I want to be very sure and explain to you that fashion is not the primary thing, the primary effort in motion pictures, is to tell the story. What I do... When I design clothes for a motion picture, I am asking the public to believe that every time they see Robert Redford in a different picture, it isn't Robert Redford, it's somebody else. I don't think people realize the power of fashion. I don't think women realize how wonderful fashion is. I don't think people realize how awful they can look or how beautiful they can look. But I would be afraid. I wouldn't be quite as happy designing a suit for you as I would for a picture suit. 
because see, I have, I'm the master of the situation because I know what the clothes can do for you. No matter how fantastic Hollywood was, at least people didn't look like unmade beds. And now when we get back, we'll talk about how Edith, along with other designers of this era, helped introduce an American look to the movies. And we'll also discuss a famous Pixar character that was modeled after Edith. This was a thing. No, 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 we can add it. No, you don't have to sing it. He can add it. This was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. And cut. May, baby doll, what the hell's going on with you? You seem as distracted as a petunia salesman on Arbor Day. Oh, it's this costume. Oh, what's wrong with you, doll? It's an Edith Head original. I know, I read the graham cracker tag, but Fritzy baby, the rest of it's made of chocolate. Oh, the shoulders are semi-sweet coated in Ovaltine powder. Oh, but it looks great on camera. I saw the dailies. No, it looks like King Kong threw his dookie on me. No, May, you look like a million. Oh, I'm I look like a million, but I feel like King Kong throws dookie on me. May, darling, let's just focus on the love scene for today. Oh, well, there's a problem. I told Walter Brennan to come up and see me sometime, and he did, and he went into insulin shock. Oh, he's diabetic. Uh, okay, well, we can bring in someone more handsome. I know just your type. Only types we have here are type 1 and type 2 diabetics. Oh, this isn't going to work. Fritzy, I can feel some pudding going up into my no-man's land. Your mouth? No, no, no. Oh, is that a hat? Yeah, and it's made of marshmallows and whipped cream. Fritzy, oh, I'm an actress, not a dessert cart. Oh, these lights are so bright, I just made a puddle. A puddle of chocolate at my feet. Oh, this is Danny Thomas's fantasy. Well, at least you can say it's a puddle of chocolate this time. Ha ha ha! Low blow, Fritzy. I didn't realize my cork had fallen out at Ramon Navarro's house. Ah, it happens to us all, May. Let's just get back to filming, huh? Okay, but let's go fast, because Mr. May is getting nervous I'm wearing German chocolate. All right, everyone. Cameras up. Marker. And let's get some more Three Musketeers on, Miss West, huh? Oh, no, 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 not after last time. I still can't sit for too long. Okay, let's get this movie going. And pictures up. May West in all quiet on the western front. Take one. Tell that to my gun at Collinger's. <laughs> and action. Thank you. This was a sketch. As I mentioned before the break, Edith helped introduce an American look to film, quote-unquote. This is another excerpt from the National Portrait Gallery that I found really interesting. Head's larger historical contribution was as part of the group of Hollywood designers, including Adrian at MGM, who designed for The Wizard of Oz, and her Paramount predecessors, Howard Greer and Travis Banton, who gave an American look to movies from the 30s on. Until then, fashion had radiated from Paris to New York, but with the coming of the war and after the Paris New York access was disrupted, and because of the ubiquitous influence movies exercised in these years, Hollywood found itself in, a, in the vanguard of fashion's Americanization. New York runways, followed by department stores around the country, became dominated not by the formal chic of Chanel and Balenciaga, but by clothes that reflected Southern California's casual elegance. Clothes first suggested by Hollywood designs from the silver screen in such films as All About Eve, 1950, and A Place in the Sun, 1951, both of which earned head Oscars for best costume designs. Her scrapbooks of the period are glued to the margins with newspapers and magazine stories trumpeting the ascension of American fashion. 
Paris-style headquarters moved to America. America now sets the style pace. Now, Edith Head was also the inspiration for the character Edna Mode in Pixar's The Incredibles. Yes, that's what I was thinking. You need a new suit. That much is certain. A new suit? Oh, where the heck am I going to get a new you suit? You can't! It's impossible! I'm far too busy, so ask me now before I again become sane. Wait, you want to make me a suit? You push too hard, darling. But I accept. It will be bold, dramatic, yeah. heroic. Yeah, something classic, like... Uh, Dino guy. Oh, he had a great look. Oh, the cape and the boots. No capes. Isn't that my decision? No capes. That's so cool. Short in stature with banged bob haircut and large framed black glasses, Edna Bone brings all of Edith Head's qualities to the great animated world. Edna has become a popular character and even appears in the Incredicoaster. At California Adventure. Disney California Adventure, yeah. Now, Universal's costume building is even called the Edith Head Building. And the bathrooms there are called the Forest Tuckers. Well, I always used to say I gotta hit the head. Ah, that's why you defecated in the costume shop. (laughs) (laughs) Great bathrooms there. Now, Edith Head was a legend. The closest anyone got to her eight Oscar wins for best costume design was Irene Sheriff with five wins. But her 15 nominations is still less than half of Edith's. And don't get me wrong, 15 nominations is obviously huge, but by comparison, Colleen Atwood has four wins and is still designing costumes, but she's at the tail end of her career and would need four more wins to equal Edith, so she'd have to... Come on, Colleen! Yeah. Uh, in clothing... In- in clothing! How funny is that? In clothing... I'm gonna keep it. In clothing, Edith is queen. Should we, should we play a game? I would love to. <laughs> This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. So, uh, Mr. Schroeder, did you know anything about Miss Edith Head? No, I got a full crash course. You did? Full crash course during this episode. I got Do you some, know how to sew? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, if need be, I could, I could fill a hole. Hey. Oh. I, I mean, I could connect a hole. Oh. Whatever you do to a hole, I could, I could fix it. She's fun and all, but she's not the subject of this game. Okay. This game's all about head, baby. Oh, no. We're going to find out who knows more about heads in a little game called Head Games. Oh. Robin Ray, you're going to compete head to head. All right. So, Ray, put your forehead against mine. Yeah, you have to. Which one? Constant contact. I'm going to read 10 head-related trivia questions. The first person to answer correctly wins a point. The one with the most points at the end can get a big head about it. Okay. The loser may just lose their head. Oh, boy. Question number one. Yes. He is the lead singer of the Talking Heads. David Byrne. Yes, that is correct. Although unnamed in the first few films of the Clive Barker horror series, the iconic main character Freddy is Kruger. widely known by this name. Uh, Jason. Uh, 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 um, uh, 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 oh, God. Pinhead. That is correct. Pinhead. The Batcave, the Hall of Justice, and Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorium are all examples of this superhero staple. Batman? Headquarters. Headquarters is correct. Oh, the word head has to... Yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> Number four. A woman in charge of a school is known as this. Headmistress. Yeah, oh, he's now he's tuned to it. Watch out. Number five. English singer who created Superstar from Jesus Christ Superstar and One Night in Bangkok. Murray Head. That is correct. This B.J. Thomas single appeared in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and was the first number one song of the 1970s. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Oh, oh, yes, that is correct. The Headless Horseman allegedly haunts Sleepy Hollow in this state. New York. Yes, that is correct. I've been there. 
No, I haven't. You live in New York State. You are the Headless Horseman. <laughs> Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, and Adam Sandler hold a radio station. Airheads. Host- yes, oh, that is correct. It. Number nine. According to the New Testament, Salome danced the dance of the seven veils for King Herod before requesting this in exchange. Her head. head the head of John the Baptist. That is correct. And finally... Greek mythological creature with many heads Medusa. that reproduce when severed. Severus? Cerberus? No. The Hydra. 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 Hail Hydra. Hail Hydra, y'all. Uh, you wanted points. You got those points, Ray. Fuck, Ray. Go back. Okay, I need to go make a call. No, no, don't, don't gamble them away. Don't gamble on, them away. Buddy. You just Come earned on. something. Just, just, Use it just, to get ahead, man. Yeah, but I got this knowledge. I got this insider. I got a tip. Okay. I just oh, got a tip. no. Oh, man. Okay, well, uh, if you know someone who's struggling with a gambling addiction, especially someone who likes to bet on mules, we still don't know why, uh, you can contact us. Ray might, might, might help you out a little Look, bit. Look, it's just... Ray, I, tell it, people about our Instagram. Oh, boy. Go ahead and find us on Instagram at thiswasathingpod, thiswasathing.com is our website, or patreon.com slash thiswasathing, old Lucy level $5 gets you exclusive content and even deeper diving. And uh, I looked at the website recently, Ray's uh, rigged it so when you click on the history, it's just off-track betting. I like to call it the OTB. Okay, we'll see you all later. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really like what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 